You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Cole, and I serve here at Sojourn as one of the church planting residents, which just means that I'm a, a pastor in training, preparing for the work of pastoral ministry and church plant, planting in, uh, in the one-day future. Um, before we get started, let me pray for us. Father, we, we come to you today probably many of us with different expectations of, of what is happening in this place and what is supposed to happen among your people and, and what we should believe about your word. And I ask that by your spirit you would unite us. I ask that by your spirit you would speak to us and through us that we would be a people, not only for your own possession, but for your glory. Lord, I surrender the things that I've prepared to you, and I ask that, that you do with them what you will. That your people might be built up in your truth, for your glory, to your praise, for the good of this city, and for the, the good of your kingdom advancing. Lord, would you move this morning? In spite of us, Lord, would you move? We trust in your Son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, um, I, I first w- want to start just by asking a question, and, and that is that it's something for you to consider, and that's, that's what, what is it that you expect should happen or will happen when the people of God gather? particularly on a Sunday morning or, or at a parish gathering or, or maybe even something as simple as meeting up with a couple of your friends from the church to, to grab coffee. What is it that you expect is going to happen? What is it that you look for to happen? What do you think is going on in those situations? And I think if we were all to write down answers and submit them, we would have a, a bunch of different answers. Some of us would say, well, well, I expect at the Sunday morning that I'm going to learn. That I'm going to learn something from what is preached. Or, or maybe some of us expect that, that I'm going to be emotionally moved by the singing of songs or, or saying prayers or, or whatever it is that is spoken from the pulpit. Maybe some of us come expecting that we will be encouraged or or have our emotions assuaged in one way or another, or maybe we come fearing that we're going to be convicted, or maybe we just show up kind of like we would to any club with people of common interest, expecting that we would see some people we really like and some people we try to avoid, and that it'll just be more of a social thing. And and I want us as a church especially for those of us who would call ourselves Christians, those of us who, would, who, would, who have signed as covenant members to this church, I want us to put all of those things on the table this morning. Because my guess is, if you're like me, your expectations for what will happen when 
the people of God gather have probably been a little off base. Because in studying this text, I I realize that mine often are. And so if you've been with us since April or any time at all in the time from April until now, you know that we've been going through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And, And this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul in the first century to a struggling five year old church in ancient Greece. And the church was struggling primarily because they were dealing with a lack of unity among the the Christians in Corinth. They were struggling because as a church of only five years old in a city with a strong culture of, of paganism and sexual immorality and career centric and, and social structures and all of these things, the church was struggling because a lot of the Christians in Corinth found themselves consistently thinking more like their Corinthian neighbors than like their Lord Jesus. They struggled to filter their life through a gospel perspective, through what Christ has accomplished for them. And so the church ended up fractured in different areas. The church ended up finding themselves walking in elitism in a lot of things. The strong or the rich or the morally superior or the socially advantaged or or the culturally honored flaunting their strengths and freedoms and power over the weak. We've seen that in regards to sexuality in this book. We've seen that in regards to the way that the Corinthians engaged with the culture, specifically paganism and food that had been offered to pagan gods. And last week we saw that play itself out in the way that the church approached the Lord's Supper. Where, where the rich were bringing their own elements and, and were eating and drinking their fill, even to the point of drunkenness, while the poor had nothing. And so Paul called them to reorient their view of the supper. And this morning, we're going to see that same sort of thing at, at play in Corinth. A church divided, struggling with elitism, but not in regards to a specific behavior, but in regards to the supernatural things at play within the church. In verse 1 of chapter 12, Paul says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, and and that's what it says in the ESV, Um, but, but if we were to more accurately translate that word, Paul just has a plural there for the word spiritual. So really he's saying, now concerning spiritual things. Now concerning the supernatural things that happen among you. So this is what Paul is now talking about, is is the supernatural, the spiritual things at play among the church. And later he will clarify that, that he's going to talk about spiritual gifts given to the people of God by the, the Spirit of God, but... But he says, now concerning spiritual things, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. This, if we've been reading the last 11 chapters of 1 Corinthians, shouldn't surprise us that that Paul has pointed out an issue that, that he's heard report about how the church in Corinth is engaging with a certain issue. And, and, and he says, let's reorient the way you're thinking about that. My understanding, church in Corinth, is that you're uninformed about the supernatural things going on among you. 
about the way that God's Spirit is interacting among you, and, and I don't want you to be uninformed. And he doesn't want them to be uninformed because what we're talking about is God's Holy Spirit in dwelling in and engaging with the people of God, which is a, a really important thing. The way that God interacts with his people is so important that, that we dare not be misinformed. We dare not just make up whatever we want to believe about those things. And, and we certainly shouldn't turn what God is doing among his people into a reason for division. So he says he doesn't want them to be uninformed about spiritual things. And then, and then in laying the foundation of the understanding of, of spiritual things, spiritual gifts, the way God is interacting spiritually and supernaturally in the Christian life, in the life of the church, he does something interesting and he reminds the Corinthian Christians of what their lives were like before they had come to faith in Christ. In verse 2, he says, you know that when you were pagans, and that word pagans is really just a, a word that uniformly describes everyone who is not a Christian. Paul is, Paul is simply saying, before you were a Christian, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. You were led astray to mute idols. However it was that you were led, you ended up following mute idols. This is profound. Paul didn't have to put the word mute before idols. He, he didn't have to put the word mute before talking about false gods, the, the gods that people worship that aren't Jesus, or, or anything that people would put their hope in that, that's not the Lord Jesus. And culturally, we know that, that the Corinthians, when we're talking about idols, were truly worshiping like carved images and, and statues, things that men created out of their imaginations and built with their hands. But, but for us, we, we understand idolatry in, in terms of whatever it is that we might put our hope in apart from Christ. For some of us, an idol is simply a false understanding of Christ. But for, but for a lot of people in our culture, an idol might be financial security, social status, material wealth, sexual pleasure. And what Paul is saying about any of those things is that they're mute, that they're speechless, that they're dumb, that they have no ability to speak or engage with the world in any amount of power. And then he says, therefore, I want you to know that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So before coming to know the work of of Jesus, the saving work of Jesus Christ, and, and being given faith by God to believe it, all people are led astray to mute and speechless idols. There are a lot of idols or gods or powers or things that we can put our hope in, and, 
and they're all worthless because they have no power to create or to speak or to save. The Corinthians used to run to their temples performing their rituals and praying to these false gods and finding pleasure in their various customs. And even so, these gods had nothing to do or to say because they were mute and meaningless and powerless. They're mute and meaningless and powerless. And, and so Paul goes on and he juxtaposes these two sayings. Jesus is accursed on the one hand and Jesus is Lord on the other. And he's using these two phrases as archetypes for false, dangerous, and blasphemous speech. And for true, saving, and divine speech. And he makes it clear that no honest confession, no true confession of faith in Jesus' lordship can be made apart from the Holy Spirit working in someone. Like nobody can honestly say with full faith that Jesus is the Lord of all things, that he's the savior of all things, that he's the hope in, in life and in death apart from God working and indwelling in that person. No one can say what is ultimately true apart from God working in them to say it. And apart from from God working in us, and apart from God's Spirit working in us, then we will only say worthless, powerless, and even dangerous things. Because we will have worthless, powerless, and dangerous gods at play in our lives. Gods that never speak. Gods that never engage with the world because they're not gods at all. You can go home and Pray to your checking account all you want, and it will never say a word of truth to you. It will never give you peace in despair. It will never give you hope in darkness. It will never create life from nothing or even from death, but we have a God who does. So all Christians... All Christians have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them and available to them in order that they might be used by Him to speak what is true regarding Him. And we know this because all Christians have said that Jesus is Lord and Paul has told us that anyone who can say Jesus is Lord has the Holy Spirit working in them. And so let's say this again. All Christians have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling in them available to them in order that they might be used by Him to speak what is true regarding Him. This is profound, church. Not only do Christians speak rightly about Jesus, but God speaks rightly through Christians about Jesus. And so now we can see why Paul has emphasized these, these mute gods while all other gods in the world and all other objects of worship and all other objects of hope are ultimately mute and powerless, our God is not. The real and true God who created the universe is a God who has primarily revealed himself and related to his creation through his speech. God spoke the universe into being. 
There was nothing and God spoke and then there were the cosmos and the world and trees and animals and plants and people just because God spoke. God spoke to Adam and to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Moses and to David in order to establish deep, meaningful covenant relationships with his people. Through his speech he did. God spoke his law to Moses on Mount Sinai that his revealed speech and revealed character might be given to the people of Israel so that they might flourish in the land that he promised them through his speech. God spoke to the prophets of old in order that his people might hear from him and turn back to him. And ultimately, God's speech, His Word, His revealed character became even more clear through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And beautifully and poetically and rightly, the Apostle John, in the first chapter of his Gospel, refers to Jesus as the Word of God made flesh because God's power in the world is in a acted through his spoken word and Jesus in the flesh is the full revelation of God's revealed character and will and speech. The word which created the world and established the covenants with the people of Israel has now been made manifest in flesh through the person of Jesus. We have a God who speaks. He spoke to the world through his incarnate word, his son. And then that word, Jesus Christ, spoke. He spoke about the kingdom of God coming. He spoke about the law. He spoke about prayer and ethics and life and relationships. He spoke about his death and his resurrection before they happened. He spoke about the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, the helper who would come after him. God spoke to the world through his son on the cross. As Jesus was proven to be the King and Lord that he claimed to be with his speech. Crying out with his speech on the cross before his dying breath. That the work of atonement for the sins of the world were complete when he spoke. It is finished. We have a God who speaks. God spoke that the work of saving the world from sin and death and despair and Satan. He spoke that it was finished and so it was. He just said it and it was. God spoke to his people and continually does through the blood of Christ. Blood which speaks a much better word than the blood of Abel poured out in murder, crying out for vengeance, we have a Lord whose blood speaks a word of grace and faithfulness, minute by minute, day by day, hour by hour, for eternity, the blood of Jesus will cry out for the forgiveness of the people of God. The blood of Jesus will constantly cry out guiltlessness, shamelessness, For the people of God who hear 
the blood crying out and trust in it. Christ spoke to his people as a resurrected king. Having conquered death, he proclaimed with his mouth in his speech that he had authority over all things. And that it was his people's task to see to it that his good and gracious kingdom that speaks the very truth of God would be established in all the earth. And so church, God's speech is immensely important. Not only because God is the only God who speaks, but because through his speech he creates, he relates, he brings about life, he saves, and he makes himself known to his people. God's speech is, man, is a manifestation of his grace. God's speech is a manifestation of his justice and of his love and of his holiness and of his perfection. What a great and loving God we have who has communicated His mysterious and eternal and divine nature to us simply through speaking to us. Clearly that we might understand. And through His speech we can be saved by Him. We can be united to Him. And we can be empowered by Him. And so Paul goes on in verses 4 through 6, and he says, Now there are varieties of gifts. And so here Paul really begins talking about spiritual gifts, and a lot of us probably have different understandings of what spiritual gifts are and how they operate and which ones operate today and which ones don't and, and all of that. But, but just bear with me, those are not questions we're probably going to answer today. But what we are going to see is, is a fundamental doctrine about how the Spirit of God enacts itself in the people of God, himself in the people of God. He says there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So the first observation we can make from, from these three verses is that Paul references in order Spirit, Lord, and God. And he does this on purpose because these are the three common names in the New Testament given to the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ, and God the Father. And so here he's saying that the way that the Spirit of God enacts itself within the people himself within the people of God the way the holy spirit dwells within the people of God the way the holy spirit moves within the people of God is diverse but so is the godhead father spirit son are diverse but they're united and and, and the the holy spirit is linked to the Father and the Son here that the Corinthians might not be misinformed regarding the Holy Spirit. It's so that the Corinthians might not think that the Holy Spirit is some ray, rogue supernatural force that's kind of enacting itself in, in whomever he wants, whenever he wants for his own purposes. The Holy Spirit is acting in perfect unity with the Father and Son for the people of God. So, so the three persons of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ the Lord, and God the Father are all referenced as Paul begins to talk about spiritual gifts. 
The spiritual gifts are not just from the Spirit, but they're from the triune God who is united and never divided. And so spiritual things or spiritual gifts, the the ones that Paul wants the Corinthians to be informed about are for the purpose of communicating the truth about the God who speaks. The second thing we can observe from these few verses is that Paul repeats over and over and over again that there is a variety of ways in which in which the people of God might be compelled by the Spirit of God. He says there are varieties of gifts, varieties of service, varieties of activities. So, so he's saying that the Holy Spirit working in the people of God is going to look different from person to person, from place to place, from month to month, but it's all from the same God. And there's not one way in which the Holy Spirit might move through the people of God that is more important or more powerful or more supernatural or more majestic or more worthy of honor than the next. Just like God is diverse in personhood, so is His church diverse in personhood. Diverse in gifts. Diverse in the way that the Spirit manifests Himself in the people of God. But Paul makes it clear. It's from the same Spirit. It's from the same Lord, and it is the same God empowering all of them. There are not some ways in which the Spirit works in the people of God that are good and some ways that are not. The spiritual gifts are the power of God. Just like the Trinity, diverse in personhood, the church is diverse in personhood, but the Trinity is united in love and in relationship and in essence as one God, just like the church, though many persons is united in love and relationship and purpose. And Paul goes on to clarify in verse 7 by saying this. He says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And over the next few weeks, verse 7 is going to be our key. It's kind of the thesis statement of Paul talking about the spiritual gifts. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And so this is a brief definition and theology of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are given to all Christians. To all Christians. Hear that. Spiritual gifts are given to all Christians. Not just Christians who pray more. Not just Christians who are are more obedient. Not just Christians who are, are... more, more spiritual in, in whatever we think of as spiritual. Spiritual gifts are given to all people within the church for the common good of the church. So spiritual gifts are the power of God working in the people of God. Not the power of people working for the glory of God. Spiritual gifts are given 
to the people of God by the power of God so that God might build up His people and expand His kingdom. Spiritual gifts are meant to proclaim God's speech and God's truth and not the personal message of whoever it is might be gifted. They're for the good of others. The whole community of faith is in mind when God gives His people gifts. This means that the spiritual gifts do not primarily exist for the enjoyment of the person who is given the gift. The Lord has not gifted me to teach His word so that I might tickle my own ears by hearing myself speak. He's gifted me so that the people of God might be built up by the truth of God's word. They don't exist primarily for the person who is gifted, but they exist for the community of faith. And they are for everyone who is a Christian. Anyone who can say that Jesus is Lord in full faith has been given the Spirit of God who dwells in them, who allows them to even utter something so simple yet profound as the Lordship of Jesus. All of these people are for whom the spiritual gifts are for. So, definitionally, spiritual gifts are supernatural divine manifestations in the life of human Christians meant to proclaim God's speech for the good of God's people. And we talked earlier about how the Corinthians kind of consistently had misunderstandings of things. And Paul said that he did not want them to be misinformed in regard to the spiritual gifts, in regards to the supernatural things at play. And we're going to read verses 8 through 10, and it's going to start shedding a little light on on what it was that was creating division within the people of God in Corinth. He says, For one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. And so Paul goes to list what we would view as the most public and probably most supernatural or or spiritual of the gifts, right? Like speaking utterances of wisdom, speaking in different tongues, working miracles, seeing people healed. Like we would say these are public, we would say these are obviously supernatural workings of God. And we don't know exactly what was at play in Corinth, but I would venture to guess that it was one of two things. Either the people in the church in Corinth who were gifted with these gifts listed, the ones that were more public, the ones that were more maybe impressive to the senses, were acting in arrogance, taking credit for what God was doing through them, belittling those who might have different gifts 
gifts of helping and administration and prayer and faith. Or those who, who saw people with those gifts were thinking that God had not gifted them at all. Or that the way he had gifted them was insignificant. Yet those who have the gifts, both the public and obviously supernatural, or the more private or or more quiet or more concealed, all of those gifts are given to the people they are given to simply because God has chosen to give them. Simply because God has chosen to give them to that person in that season. But what what is the purpose? Verse 7, for the common good. Not for the people gifted or, or not for the people who feel like they're not gifted, but for the common good that the whole church, that the whole kingdom of God might benefit by God having bestowed his spirit in a certain measure of power so that he could proclaim his truth and his power and his grace through his people so that his people might be built up in faith, built up in repentance, built up in assurance, built up in, a, in worship that God might receive glory. These gifts will only be manifested as long as God chooses to manifest them in that person. Gifted in in one way, one day, does not guarantee that the Spirit will continue to gift somebody in that way. But in the time and in the place that God's Spirit manifests Himself through the people of God, it is for the purpose of the people of God being built up. Not that we might be impressed by some charismatic leader or, or not that we might be impressed by, by some awesome deeds that we might witness, but so that God's glory might be revealed. We've already established that we have a God who speaks and and while formerly God has chosen to speak through covenant relationships with his people and then through his law and then through his prophets. And finally God spoke fully and finally and completely through his son. But now in this time, in the working of history, God has primarily chosen to speak to his people and to the world through his people. And that is why the Spirit chooses to dwell within us and manifest Himself through us so that we might be empowered by God to speak the things of God for the people of God and for those who are not yet the people of God. And so God's speech is how we know God. It's ultimately the method through which we're saved by God. And God has chosen to speak primarily through His Spirit, through His people. And every person in the church is given God's Spirit. And therefore is meant to be used for the proclamation of God's truth for God's people. Did 
you hear that, church? Did you hear that, that that every person in the church is given God's spirit and therefore is meant to be used for the proclamation of God's truth for his people? This is so empowering. This means that that as we've been calling, calling ourselves to deeper unity throughout this sermon series, calling ourselves to honor each other equally with full dignity, with full brotherly and sisterly love, that now we've been given this theology of how the Spirit works in us to to bring that to completion. I can think of myself no higher than another or no lower than another within the church because God's Spirit has chosen to indwell all of us and work through all of us. How dare we glorify or impugn man who has been given the Spirit of God? How dare we belittle or pour fame upon women who have been given the Spirit of God? For all have been given gifts of the Spirit for the common good. Not just those in leadership. Not just those who pray the right prayers, not just those who, who interact with the church in a certain way. If you've been given the Spirit of God to proclaim in full faith that Jesus is Lord, then God is going to use you to speak through you. And so the question becomes, do we, do we expect that? Is that what we're expecting? I debated whether or not to say this, but I'm going to. Um, since we've been going through 1 Corinthians, the, the primary things we've been talking about are unity and brotherly and sisterly love and laying down our rights for the sake of our brothers and sisters. And, and in this same sermon series, the things that, that our neighborhood parishes and our individual relationships with within the church have been most disrupted by is is disunity, a lack of brotherly and sisterly love, and selfishness. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that when we show up here on Sunday morning, we are not expecting God to speak. I, I think when we show up at our parish gatherings, we're just not expecting that the God of the universe is gracefully going to speak to us, but he said he's going to. And he's going to speak truth and he's going to speak grace and he's going to speak his love and his justice and his mercy and he's going to unite us by that spirit. So so please, Christian, do not come to a Sunday gathering expecting just to learn a Bible lesson or to sing some of the songs of the ones we sing that are your favorite. Would we be a church that shows up expecting that God might speak to us? Like with our hands open and our hearts ready to be convicted by God's truth or encouraged by God's truth or united to one another as we come to the table in communion with God and with one another, knowing that God has spoken His covenant grace to us, knowing that God has called us a family and that makes us a family. 
When we gather, we should come expecting God to speak to us and willing to be changed by that. When you speak with your Christian brothers and sisters in a parish gathering or at a coffee shop or in your living room or or wherever, you should be expecting that God's Spirit might show up and speak to you through them because they have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. And and so we ought to be a church who, who prays that God's Spirit manifests Himself boldly and powerfully and faithfully through us. We might be a church that prays that these gifts that we read about, that some of us are a little afraid of, might start manifesting themselves more so that God can speak to us. Not so that we can be an impressive, spiritual, supernatural congregation, but so that God might speak to His people, that we might be built up for the common good. And then what will happen, church, is we'll be united. When God speaks his truth to his people, we'll start to be more united. When God speaks his love and his grace and his forgiveness to his people, we'll start loving each other more. When God speaks his promises and his grace and his justice and his mercy and his truth to his people, we'll start to lay down our rights for one another because ultimately God's speech through his son is revealed in sacrifice and in love and in justice and in steadfastness and in unity. That's why God speaks. He could speak anything, but he spoke in love. He could speak anything he wanted into the world, yet he spoke in grace and forgiveness and power. And he's spoken that he desires his people to be united and to be loving to one another and to be graceful to one another. And ultimately, he's spoken that he wants to speak through his people. So would we expect that? Can we start expecting that when we gather that God's going to speak? Not because anyone who will have this pulpit is particularly gifted or because they're particularly knowledgeable, but just because the Spirit of God is here and He might speak to us. In fact, we should expect that He will. As we sing songs, we we should expect that God would speak and remind us of His presence, of His power, of His purpose, not because... Not because our our musicians are particularly gifted, but because God's speech works through His people. When we come to this table, are we expecting just to remember something we once believed or put faith in? Are we expecting that, that the cup, which represents and and by God's spirit truly is his blood of the new covenant are we expecting that that's going to speak to us that God's going to speak you're forgiven you're loved I will never leave you I will always be here and and through his body are we expecting that he's going to speak I've been broken so that you can be made whole let's be a church that expects God to speak because when we're a church that, God, that expects God to speak, not only will, be, will we have more love for one another, will we be more united, will we be more willing to be sacrificial to one another, but what will ultimately happen is that more and more people will start being saved in our neighborhood because we will have a really compelling reason to invite them in. Our reason won't be, hey, come to my neighborhood parish. There's a lot of cool people there. It will be, Man, you should come to my house on Wednesday night because God's been speaking. 
Because when we're there, like the God of the universe speaks his love to us and we're like moved by it, we're changed by it. Come to this Sunday gathering with me because when we're there, the God of all things, he chooses by his grace to reveal himself, to speak to us. If we want our, our city and our neighborhood to be saturated by the God of the universe, proclaiming his gospel over the lost, over the spiritually dead, over the people in our city who continually run after gods who will never speak, we have to believe that ours will. And that he has. And that he's not going to stop until he draws all things and all people to himself and renews the heavens and the earth by his speech. Let's pray. Lord, would you speak to us? Would you break down in our hearts, Father, disbelief? Would you break down in our minds low expectations of what might happen when your people gather? And would you build us up in, in a love and an honor for one another, knowing that, that our brothers and sisters are valuable because you've said they are and you dwell in them and, and that you might speak your truth through them. And so would you come and do that? Would you transform this church to be a church that it expects you to move, that prays for you to move with faith and hope? And, and ultimately, would you speak a better word to this city that people might be saved? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.